Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. This podcast is for you if you have an insane drive to find the truth of things. It's not the good answers that we seek, but the good questions. I interview a range of different guests from many different fields, all with the intention to uncover the simple truths that are hidden in plain sight. Most people don't want to go there. I go there. My guests go there, and you benefit. Please let me know if you enjoy these episodes, and as always, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the podcast. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is Matt Bunday. He uh, works in crypto. Uh, he's a rock climber, does martial arts, and also is into underground psychedelic therapy. Uh, and I invited Matt onto the show in order to talk about knowledge management because he responded to a tweet talking about how do we actually bring LLMs into knowledge management, into companies, so that it's not just such a disorganized mess. So welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, what is the biggest problem you faced with knowledge management at your companies? Uh, I think Slack has often been at the nexus of a lot of these problems. Um, basically, how disorganized communication can get when things are moving fast. Threads is somewhat helpful if people can stick to it, but in my experience, also a pretty clumsy interface. Yes. And yeah. <laughs> I've just always seen a lot of uh, dropped balls due to communication, kind of like not getting the people who need it. Um, and I really see LLMs being an easy interface where somebody could ask a question and then just have a response that comes back with the latest information. Uh, um, why do you think Slack is so bad? I, I remember in 2012 uh, using it for the first time. And it caught on like wildfire, and I was like, "Oh my god, this is the this is this is a huge problem that this is catching on like wildfire because this is <laughs> such a clumsy product." Like, why do you think it spread so fast? I definitely think it was a step up from email. I mean, email has its own level of chaos that happens. Um, I think that people were dying for a chat product that at least had the concept of channels. So it was one level of organization that was helpful. Um, and certainly within the startup environment that I was working in a lot of times, email just felt too slow, too cumbersome. Um, and before Slack, I remember some of the startups I was at, we were using IRC uh, and Slack felt like a very natural replacement for that. That was more friendly for like non-engineering units of the business to jump into. Uh, <laughs> um, do you think there's an opportunity for a new a new Slack that really brings in uh, more like, because for me, the biggest thing, like jumping into Slack is just absolute chaos. Uh, and that might be just a function of communications in general, that it's just, it's just a chaotic, particularly when you have more than two people. Like I was added to a Slack thread today with seven people and I was like, I don't have time to to go through all of these, all of these <laughs> messages right now. Like this will, I need to set aside 15 minutes later on to go and dig through this, this to, to understand what was actually relevant. And then, as you said, email is now another one added onto Slack. So not only do you have to think about email, but you have to add, think about Slack. Uh, do you think it's a, it's a matter of the, the, the medium itself or, or just like the, the, the best practices of communications are so chaotic that no product can really simplify it. I think it's a pretty nuanced issue. One thing I'll say is that I think information architecture is always going to be difficult regardless of the product. Um, 
I've used some Slack alternatives like Twist that I really liked. Um, but Twist, although it really guides people to try to have a better information architecture, it's still very possible to screw it up. Um, so there's definitely system building and culture building that's required in a company to kind of get people on board with like uh, information management best practices. And I think what LLMs could promise to do is maybe just take all of that out of the hands of humans. Like uh, if you imagine Slack integrating an LLM so that when you jump into a new thread, it instantly is like, okay, here's a summary of everything that's been discussed in this thread so far. I mean, how much easier does that make your life? That it would be huge. Um, and are, have you gotten into the weeds in terms of training LLMs and the 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 delta between when we use LLMs, there's this really, particularly chat GPT-4, there, there's this really simplified product that they've already thought a lot about. But then what's the delta between that product and then all of the crazy stuff that you need to do in order to implement it? Yeah, so the gap is shrinking really fast in terms of it being crazy stuff you have to do. Um, one thing that I saw in this leaked screenshot of unreleased uh, ChatGPT plugins is there's already a Slack plugin. So Slack is already working with OpenAI on, I mean, I'm just assuming how this is going to work. I haven't seen the details, but basically that in ChatGPT, you could plug in a Slack workspace and then you could just directly query ChatGPT about anything that's going on in your Slack workspace. So. I think that's already coming really fast. Um, hmm. OpenAI also released their retrieval plugin, which is basically a universal adapter for any source of data you want to like plug in as kind of a memory module for ChatGPT. Um, that's pretty easy. Um, and there's also incumbents in the Slack knowledge management space that I think are going to follow on very fast with AI-enabled products. Um, I think there's a company called Guru and they were doing kind of a more primitive um, natural language processing based product where anytime you asked a question in Slack, their bot would try to use basically search in order to surface answers to your question. Um, and since they already have that expertise, I really expect that they would come out very fast with like a LLM power version of that. That's really cool. I think that the guru thing might be good for me to go track down immediately um, to help me because the <laughs> Slack thing is, I, I have not enjoyed coming back into Slack. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's take it back to information architecture, information management, data management, and knowledge management. What do you think is the difference between knowledge management and information management? Hmm. Um... I don't know that I have a well-defined difference between those terms in my mind. Mm -hmm. If I were to try to create a definition between those two terms, I think knowledge management would be this higher level synthesis of various forms of information. And I think to me, information management would then be more about siloing related mm -hmm. types of information together. Um, and then knowledge would be the cross synthesis of, of information across those different silos. That was very good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that was, that was pretty well formulated from my, from my perspective. Um, <laughs> and so what do you think is the importance of a silo? Like, because silos are good in some sense because you don't want 
people who shouldn't be looking at various information, sensitive information to know that. And also just you were already in an information rich environment. All of us are already just overwhelmed by the amount of information we're consuming. So you don't want to give non-relevant information to people, but then you do want the certain type of information to get through. What do you think is the main thing about that barrier and that membrane making it porous for some things, but then also blocking it off for other things? Mm. Yeah, you bringing up privacy is a great point. Uh, I was thinking of silos in terms of, of almost like data types, like you have oh, different yeah. um, tables in a database. So I think it's helpful to group related kinds of information, like um, information about people into oh. a format. Um, but I think privacy is actually a really interesting place where I think LLMs could be very innovative. Um, one thing I've been thinking about is, let's say that you and I were to actually kind of share an LLM <sighs> and that this LLM is ingesting information from both of our private data silos, but we can both specify to, we, to the LLM in natural language, a privacy policy. So I could write something like, um, don't reveal private information about the people in my life, but information about me is open game. And if you notice information that would benefit Stuart to know, you can bring that to me and then I can decide to share it. That's cool. um, and I think what's really cool about LLMs, and I've been testing this a little bit, is they actually are able to understand nuances of like, oh, this might be information that someone might want to keep private versus this is information that someone probably be comfortable sharing. Um, just the ability to like um, use natural language as a programming uh, interface is really powerful. Okay, that, that brings up something I'd love to talk about, which is you being technical, maybe even particularly in the crypto space, uh, have you, it, it, we'll, I'll set this up a little bit before, most of the engineers that I talk to uh, have not adapted quickly or don't want to adapt quickly to having ChatGPT write them code. Some, A lot of them use Copilot to help, um, mm -hmm. but there's sort of like a resistance to it. I think part of, for very good reasons of essentially like, they've already thought through a lot of these things and and then there's the other thing of just habit. And so for me, me being non-technical, one of the big things once I saw ChatGPT 3.5 was like, oh, I can actually get this thing to code for me. And I failed at that. It was not good enough. But then ChatGPT 4 came six months later, and all of a sudden I have this thing that can now code for me. Um, yeah. What do you, are you starting to use uh, machine learning LLMs in your coding at all? And if so, how so? Yeah, I use it as much as I can. Um, I mean, thinking back to when I started, I always loved editor autocomplete. Um, I thought that was great. Uh, and then when Copilot came out, I jumped on that. Uh, Copilot definitely had some issues with it in that it was more kind of more difficult to prompt it correctly. Like one of the best ways to prompt it was to write out comments or doc strings before a function. And then basically like you have a spot where you can define what the function is going to do uh, and then have it spit that out. But a lot of times the sort of like inline suggestions, if I'm like typing midway through a function, um, those weren't always so good. Um, I especially like, it would be hard to prompt it to code in certain styles sometimes. Um, so I feel like a lot of my copilot auto completed code, I would then go back over and edit to kind of like 
fit inside our code base a little bit more. Interesting. Um, and have you used it recently? I think, Has it improved? Um, no, I haven't noticed a dramatic improvement yet, but I also haven't been working with it that much because I actually have been working a lot more with um, GPT-4 inside of ChatGPT um, and finding it very helpful as a starting off point for projects. Um, super helpful for different kinds of like um, conversion processes. Like if you get some CSS code that you want to convert into a format that's compatible with React inline styles, uh, you can just ask it like, hey, do this. And something that used to be like a lot of uh, kind of tedious typing is just like a instantaneous process now, which is really great. Interesting. So what are the things that GPT-4 has not been helpful for you? Um, so I think that using GPT-4 for a larger project yeah. does pose some interesting challenges because you can't kind of like dump 20 files in there as context. Um, so it forces, and this is kind of good programming practice anyways, it kind of forces you to think about modular pieces of your code um, that you can describe to GPT in a self-contained manner. Yeah. And well, that's it's kind of a nice thing anyway. <laughs> yeah, uh, there, well, there is a specific tool I've heard of and I used is called uh, ChatGPT Splitter uh, so that it um, mm -hmm. splits up the content that you want to give it uh, and you just have to copy and paste into the right levels of content. Um, mm. so I've been using those for transcriptions for my uh, for podcast episodes, I just plug in the transcription and then ask it to give me a summary and show notes. Uh, but oh, the, yeah, the transcription itself is too big for for one thing, basically. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But do you think that GPT four is going to like? Well, not GPT four, but do you think the next gens coming down the pipeline are going to solve that problem of essentially? And this ties into a question I also want to ask about building systems based on what you just said. You can't really have GPT four build the whole system for you. But how long until? a machine learning algorithm is able to actually build this giant system that could um, that could give, you know, 500,000 people the ability to use it. I think we'll get there. Um, there's another code completion tool called tab nine that I've also used and um, tab nine will actually try to train the model against your local code. Oh, um, so for larger code bases, I think it can be a little bit better. I kind of, contextualizing within your code base and generating code of the same style. Um, and I think since they have that framework, uh, it can probably do things closer to this like whole project management at that point. Interesting. Uh, so before we start to go into kind of like higher level, interesting philosophy, psychedelic type of stuff, I want to make <laughs> sure we've got this, uh, this, this conversation of knowledge management really dialed down. What, what other yeah. things are, are, are really important for me as this as a, my new role as director of knowledge management what are some other things that we should think about in terms of incorporating technology and tools into this yeah um so what i'm really most excited about right now is actually the application of llms to social and kind of like societal coordination um so if you imagine you had a shared llm for all your friends and family or something where um, it could actually start to surface serendipity between users where, um, like, I even imagine 
if Facebook were to do this, it's like someone posts that they're trying to get rid of a couch and someone else is looking for a couch. Like the LLM can actually like read these things and then like cross surface that insight. Um, so, so I'm envisioning a, a future where everyone's talking to a LLM and then on the back end of all of that, there's actually a even more powerful LLM that's kind of processing the data from everybody else's LLMs and is starting to surface these um like serendipitous connections between people of like oh i think that you might really want to meet mary because she has been telling me about the same kind of thoughts that you've been having and like uh you're both single so maybe you want to go on a date and then the llms <laughs> could even schedule that date like <laughs> where, where do you think the line is like at what point on this line that we're talking about do we do we uh merge with the machines mm-hmm um, I mean, to get into Neuralink, I do think that merging with the machine in some sense requires a maybe sufficiently high bandwidth connection with it. Um, I think that by the time that my internal monologue is feeding directly into an LLM, I'll probably consider that like a merger. Um, <laughs> That's interesting. So without you as a conscious experience or kind of the, the Neuralink is itself translating your deepest thoughts uh into the llm yeah <laughs> yeah um so i think that's the point where we cross the line from being a human to being transhuman is once the thing is inside of our heads and kind of bypassing our conscious thought i think that's where it moves yeah i would consider myself fully a cyborg at that point yeah <laughs> but in, in but this brings us such an interesting philosophical philosophical question because we already like i'm already on my phone all the time that mm -hmm. phone is not inside of me but it is technically if we consider the far more important virtual space that most of us humans all of us humans um exist in is this kind yeah. of virtualized world i just joined a remote startup and that remote startup doesn't have a physical location the startup itself is almost entirely in this virtual shared space and when i say virtual i don't mean the actual technology piece all of that yeah. is part of it it's the actual like fundamentals of our conscious experience that that thing is already shared and virtually and has been since humans invited invented language probably um yeah and so like are we already cyborgs like i already feel kind of like a cyborg given how tethered i am to the phone yeah totally um i would argue that cyborgism probably even began with like wearing shoes i mean that's <laughs> we're already making ourselves kind of uh horse-like creatures with the whole shoe thing <laughs> interesting and then what are the fundamental like what do you think will happen at a at a societal level there's a lot of people who are very afraid of this i personally am mm -hmm. not too afraid i'm 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 pretty excited just because of all the repetitive work i won't have to do like you're explaining with the the um the uh css copying that over and how repetitive it is and now there's this tool that you don't have to spend all of that energy and you can just really think about the high level stuff where do you fit on this fear spectrum uh, versus ex excitement? Well, I'm definitely feeling like uh, at a bit of a life path crossroad because there is a part of me that uh, notices that I feel like a lot of current knowledge work will be obsolete in some sense. Um, I think as the sort of programmer who's always believed the point of programming was automation and to kind of like move up the abstraction ladder. Um, I've been very quick to adapt to these technologies, but I kind of wonder like 
I mean, will I have a role in 10 years if I continue in this field? And there's a part of me that's like, maybe now is the time for me to start investing in somatic work, more um, learning body work, and actually like deeply embedding myself in the things that are more uniquely human um, that would be difficult for LLM to do. <laughs> yeah, this is perfect because this ties into the the that, that type of stuff, which is interesting for me because... Uh, for the past 10 years, I've been going through a deep medical crisis uh, and the things that were far more helpful than any sort of substance that could block off those feelings were things like body work, meditation, mm. exercise, dancing, uh, all these things that we humans, like a robot doesn't even, you know, I've seen the videos of the robots dancing, but it doesn't feel <laughs> like they're gaining anything from that dancing. Uh, except for <laughs> part of their 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 uh, technical understanding of of maybe reality, but uh, but then bodywork became such an important aspect, um, and now randomly, serendipitously, have found myself back in the tech world uh, through a job offer with a remote company that is related to um, uh, sort of uh, LLMs and such. Uh, and so now I'm really thinking about this question of, okay, well, what goes away? This, the skill that I've developed as a body worker, uh, feels like it's going to be a while until somebody feels really comfortable having a robot do body work on them. Um, yeah. <laughs> and we, I, we already have those things and a lot of the best body works or workers that I go to, they use these tools already, but it's not the tool mm -hmm. that makes them so good at it. It's their, it's their <laughs> inner depth and inner strength and inner, inner kind of power that makes the tool helpful for them in the same way that their fingers become more like that. Um, what is your take on, on body worker? Are, are you starting to move into that field? Yeah, it's something that I've had as kind of a background 10% uh, time investment thing for a while. Um, because of, of my martial arts practice, I get beat up a lot and body workers are very helpful for uh, kind of increasing my recovery rate. Uh, my primary uh, ninjutsu teacher also worked as a massage therapist for um, several decades and he basically found it as like a way that he could work on his uh, martial arts skills while earning an income because uh, it turns out that a lot of these sensitive points in the body that you might want to strike uh, if you're mm -hmm. attacking someone are also places where um, there's a lot of healing application um, a lot of Asian martial arts emphasize this aspect of uh, if you know how to heal, you also know how to kill. It's like uh, a surgeon knows how to use this tiny blade to just like end your life in a moment. So, <laughs> uh, interesting. Uh, so, what is ninjutsu? How is it different from other martial arts practices? Yeah, uh, ninjutsu is a martial art that historically is associated with ninjas, um, and ninjas were among the samurai, like the intelligence gatherers, the assassins, kind of a special forces version of a samurai uh, in some way. And it's really beautiful about this tradition is that we have unbroken lineages of transmission going back to like the 1400s. Uh, oh. And unfortunately with like European martial arts, a lot of uh, the lineages of transmission were kind of uh, broken at certain points. So you have people recreating historical European martial arts from manuals. Um, and it's a difficult process because it's like static pictures and words to try to recreate movement from. Um, and we're very lucky that there are still people alive who can kind of like show us uh, in demonstration, like how these movements are done. 
that is really interesting because I've seen the same thing with yoga. One of the most interesting mm-hmm. uh, things with yoga is that um, many people think that it is an ancient ancient Indian tradition with an unbroken lineage. But as with everything, the actual story is much less uh, is uh, much less simple. It's it's not simple. Uh, th- there's a really really interesting back and forth between British colonialism uh, and yoga as it existed. And then there's also just like tons of different strains of yoga. You have Patanjali yoga, which is from 400 BC. And then so many things happened within India between Patanjali and with Advaita Vedanta and then later Mm. your Shaivism, um, which took on whole new meanings for yoga. And then there's the actual Mm. part of the problem, which is essentially that in India before we brought before the British brought the the kind of standardized Western education model to it. Religion didn't it wasn't this one thing. It's like you, you kind of have to figure about the lineage, the family, different families had different practices. So it's just like huge, huge creation of all these different things. And you can't really call them yoga. And then there's this yep. one strain called Hatha yoga that from my understanding, this might be inaccurate, but from my understanding in the 1700s and the 1800s was sort of a black magic yoga. You'd have these mm. these these uh fakirs walking around and putting spells on you if you don't give them the the donation uh and mm. oh so, and then that somehow the once the british brought the scandinavian gymnastic practices to india the indian nationalists who were kind of sparked by madame blavatsky and her theosophy started to yeah. um like uh mold this new na- nationalist identity for indians and then took that and created this yoga and then spread that to america and then america then created gym yoga out of this thing that's like <laughs> magic and uh and uh and so it's just like this wild strange thing that i'm sure there are unbroken lineages within india um uh but i think they're hard to find and and a lot yeah. of indians today are practicing western uh, they have like championships for postural yoga, which is comes from like Scandinavia. Mm. And it's really interesting wow. you bring this up for Japan because Japan feels like they were able to, like there definitely was a lot of transfer, like with the Meiji restoration and everything like that from the West, yep. but they were able yep. to kind of keep that thing that happened to India uh, away from it. What, what's your take on that? Um, yeah, several things that I'm really excited to talk about here. Um, thank you for explaining more of that background with yoga. Like one strand of that history that I found really interesting was, uh, when researching chakra systems, uh, I learned that the seven chakra rainbow system was created by the theosophists. And like, if you look in the older Asian traditions, there's no real agreement about number of chakras, uh, colors of chakras what deities you install into various chakras. So I started thinking of chakras as like uh, psychosomatic software that we install into our own body systems. And like, I actually do have the seven color rainbow chakra system because it just kind of works for me, but <laughs> it's like, uh, I don't take it to be a historical ancient discovered, like physiological truth of all humans or something. Um <laughs> And then Japan's a really interesting thing. You brought up the Meiji Restoration and a big controversy in um, Japanese martial arts lineages is actually that a lot of Japanese martial arts lost a certain essence um, during the Meiji Restoration because um, the carrying of the swords was banned. 
a lot of Lee's arts kind of modernized. So you have things like judo, which is really more of a sport. Um, a lot of traditions that were combatic based in weaponry um, were really changed by that time period and um, lost the connection to armed combat that they uh, had. That's super interesting. Um, yeah, so this brings up a, a, a question of, of tradition versus innovation. And I mean, we could even tie it back into LLMs and, and like, because it's, I, for my studies of yoga, that unbroken transmission lineage is really, really important for that sort of download that you get, particularly in an enlightenment traditions from that, the, mm. the, the root guru, like the, the, it's believed that the power itself transmits through the transmission. Uh, mm. and, and that if you're practicing uh, gym yoga with this weird mixed up, like, oh, it's somewhat spiritual, but it's not really that spiritual because we don't have to we don't have to go into that. And there's this fluffy kind of theosophism stuff as well. Not to I mean, I think that theosophy actually came up with some interesting things, but it's also uh, some strange stuff. Um, and so it just becomes like it's such a question of our age because it particularly feeling from the Western standpoint where we've had this scientific framework that basically seems like it just specializes in destroying tradition um and so <laughs> we in the west seems like we've lost a lot of our tradition uh and then we're but that that fundamental aspect of of, of how it serves a human being to be in, in uh enmeshed in this tradition that that hasn't gone away and so mm. it feels like we're in this like strange period where technology and science and engineering are breaking all these things apart and but that we still need those things um but maybe maybe um this kind of cyborg discussion maybe those things can help but maybe they can hurt mm -hmm. um what's your take on that yeah um i think that the japanese concept for tradition um feels very informative to me and beautiful like their word for a stream of transmission is uh ryu which is uh in the Chinese word is basically stream. It literally is the character you use when describing like a stream of water uh, moving through a landscape. So um, I like that imagery a lot because there is the sense that like there is a source of the stream, like maybe high up in the mountain where all the rainwater is collecting. But as the stream is moving through the landscape, it is like water fluidly adapting to the changing times and like flowing through obstacles, however it must. Um, so one thing I appreciate about um, Japanese traditions is they've been pretty good at adapting to the times, at least the ones that have survived. Um, like it wasn't long after the uh, firearm was brought to Japan that uh, Oda Nobunaga very famously incorporated them almost immediately into his military strategy. And then was just this um, awesome destructive force, almost unified Japan. Um, through that kind of like change tactics. Um, so I think there's this attitude of adaptability that I identify with Japanese culture that I think is uh, really cool to bring into like any tradition that we partake in. Okay, that's really interesting because that brings up the kind of uh, membrane thing that we were talking about before um, because Japan has an excellent membrane uh, in terms of not letting outsiders in um, uh, like they, they, you know, outsiders can come to Japan and live there, but they'll never ever be accepted as, as a Japanese person from my understanding. Uh, but they've 
they were one of the only countries in Asia to actually successfully take all the tools that the Western Westerners had 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 uh, brought and like turn them back around and like say like okay we're using these against you. Uh, what what do you think it is about Japan that created that unique aspect? Yeah, it's really interesting. Like that historical decision to kind of stop Christianity spread in Japan is like a pretty big deal. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's a great movie about this recently uh, about two Franciscan monks who go to Japan. Mm. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. Uh, and it's just, just, it's a, it's a, it's an intense movie. It's really, really uh, powerful in its intensity, but you know, it's like, as you said, the, the story ends essentially with them not succeeding. Um, yeah. I think there's a lesson in like the history leading up to World War One and World War Two of um, this willing, like deliberate willingness to look at other people and to try to identify what they do best and to take that into yourself. Where mm -hmm. um, Japan and sent lots of people to Britain because Britain was seen as having the best navy at the time, and they're like, okay, let's take as much naval strategy as we can from the British sent a lot of people to Germany because Germany was seen as having the best land armies at the time. And it's like, okay, how do we take as much German land army technology as we can? And like really rapidly incorporated that into their own society. Um, now that was very much a conscious decision and like a deliberate strategy. So um, it feels like something that we can all impart into our lives. Yeah, interesting. One of the most uh, fascinating things I find is the, uh, the like in 1900s where Russia started to go started to have more um, contact with Japan and specific particularly when they were trying to establish Vladivostok on on the on the sea and and kind of bring the Pacific into their their sphere and then they 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 started to bang into Japan and Japan like had just done so much since the Meiji Restoration to advance their military in ways that Russia couldn't do. Because Russia is in a similar, well, it's actually a totally different thing, but it, it's like Russia is like this insider outsider of Europe, um, but also has this sort of Asian thing. You know, the Mongols had conquered it and everything like that, and mm -hmm. and so Russia is always trying to prove itself to Europe that that oh no, we are one of you. We can create all this different stuff, but Europe's like no, no, you aren't. Um, you're, you're over there and you know we're, we're gonna watch out for you because you got so much land and you got a lot of people and everything like that but you're not one of us uh, and then now they, they clash with Japan in 1905 and they try to send a giant fleet of ships from St. Petersburg all the way across Africa down all the way through the Indian Ocean to go battle the Japanese uh, Whoa. and then, uh, and just there's like, they stopped in Madagascar for like four months and it was a total shit show. They were bringing on animals into the, into the boats and just like total madness that these like Russians all drunk, uh, in like these really hot climates, just creating total chaos. Um, and they finally, finally make it to the Strait of Tsushima, which is like in between Korea and Japan, a really good choke point for Japan. Um, and then the Japanese fleet uh just totally destroys them in one in one hour <laughs> after this two-year long journey and their <laughs> european fleet um and then russia's just like oh my god that that period for russia from like 1905 to 1950 probably was just like such a horrible horrible time time for them mm -hmm. uh, yeah.
Cool. Okay, so we got Japan, we got Russia. Uh, let's talk about psychedelics uh, and this uh, uh, fascinating technology that exists. But in the same way we've been talking about yoga, a lot of the common understanding of it's probably not that accurate. What is your take on how psychedelics fit into this transmission, enlightenment, uh, somatic stuff? Yeah, I don't know much about the history of psychedelics in terms of uh, a lot of wisdom trans uh, tradition transmissions um, other than but I do think at least with ayahuasca things have changed a lot my understanding is in the past uh, often only the curandero was the one taking the ayahuasca and then he was working on patients um, who are not taking the medicine and um, this concept that everyone in the ceremony is taking the medicine now is really a reaction to Westerners who are visiting and who are like, hey, I want to try that. Like, I want to be a part of uh, that aspect of the experience. <laughs> that is wild. I've never heard that before, but it makes a lot of sense because it kind of, from my understanding of the whole shaman thing, the shaman is this crazy healer guy who who is is separate from the tribe and isn't really uh, like, and so the, the, the sense that he would go take the ayahuasca, he or she would go take the ayahuasca and then uh, essentially heal the person while they're under the influence because you don't want to be breaking apart most of the tribe's mental frameworks with these very strong psychedelics. Mm, mm. Um, so it sounds like you've had some experiences with ayahuasca. Uh, 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 any other medicines that you have you found helpful? Uh, psilocybin, certainly. Um, used to use LSD, but for some reason, and my physiology seems to have changed and it no longer agrees with me very well um which is kind of an interesting thing that's happened to the age um yeah i think that in terms of uh impact on my life ayahuasca has probably been the most impactful i did 10 ceremonies um kind of at the point now where i'm not really seeking out further ceremonies that feels a bit complete for me at the moment that's cool um yeah and were you, was this in New York or were you going to California or Peru or, or Brazil? Um, five sits in Peru, yeah, all in a row. Uh, and then uh, the other five ceremonies were various places in the Northeast. Uh -huh. um, have you, what's your thought on Iboga? Mm, yeah, I'm very intrigued by it. I've never uh, had the opportunity to try it. It sounds scary, um, which... Um, I kind of enjoy the challenge of some experiences. Um, certainly found combo um, mm. thrilling in some sense. Um, <laughs> this might be the martial arts side of me, but uh, I do find experiences where I get beat up a little to be uh, kind of uh, life affirming. <laughs> I, I think uh, I think Iboga might 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 resonate with you. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, for I found out about it about twelve years ago. Um, and, mm. uh, immediately once I, once I had heard about it, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm scared of this. And this sounds horrific, but at the same <laughs> time, it's like, oh, that, that feels like it's might be able to teach me something. Um, but yeah, mm -hmm. definitely is a, uh, a very terrifying experience, but it's, it's a, it's a benevolent 
it's definitely a benevolent spirit to the to the 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 substance um in the same way that i feel like ayahuasca is although ayahuasca i think can mess with someone's sense of self in a way that iboga can't so even though that hmm. i'm not not to say that iboga ceremonies can't be traumatizing if you if you um if you go at it the wrong way most people who are it, uh, experiment with Iboga actually do it on their own in their own rooms trying to get off of heroin mm-hmm. because it's it's so effective mm-hmm. people off of heroin. Um yeah. but uh but yeah I think that it's a it's it's the 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 Buiti in um Gabon they call it the greatest hunter for the truth. Um and mm. so it, it I after my big ceremony with the flood flood dose I used it in microdoses and those microdoses were definitely like I take a little bit of it and it's like coffee, but with this added extra ability to find the truth of a situation pretty quickly uh, that you're oh. you're dealing with, you know, most of that is metaphorically, but they actually take microdoses in order to hunt. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so it also has a truth aspect in terms of the immediate physical embodiment as well. Um, Interesting. But- but it lasts 12 hours. So the, the flood dose lasts 12 hours. Uh, and then you have another 12 hours where you need to integrate. Uh, so it's a full mm. 24 hours experience and you take it at night um, if you're following that Bwiti tradition. But again, this brings in the same thing of the the transmission line. A lot of people think that Westerners shouldn't be doing it by the Bwiti because the Bwiti is, has this whole cultural understanding of people who have been born into a culture that they've grown up in. Mm-hmm. Very, very familiar with that culture. Uh, and then in the West, you have heroin addicts who are going like, okay, well, I got to adapt to that culture to understand it. And it's like, maybe we in the West need to create our own wisdom traditions from this thing from what from my perspective feels like a sort of we science has broken the whole transmission and so we need to actually develop our own and i think the next couple hundred mm. years are probably going to be about that of a set how do we how do we meet this need of human beings to have a unbroken transmission uh but also having that accord with what we know about science and and rationality yeah for sure yeah i'm excited for what i see as potentially a new wave of you know like western educated buddhas basically um who are able to integrate these things i mean what you want in a tradition is just that you had some enlightened founder and there's no reason that enlightened founder has to be hundreds of years in the past um i think that contemporary enlightened founders could be very powerful Mm -hmm. um you know, to be determined how enlightened many of these people are. Uh, <laughs> that seems to be something that, you know, takes a lifetime to find out. <laughs> and, well, I think that's where the tradition comes in because it's, it's you have you have somebody who may claim enlightenment, you know, and there's certain takes on whether if somebody's claiming enlightenment, are they really enlightened? How can you be enlightened and claim enlightenment as an ego? Uh, and, uh, uh, but I think that's, you got, you nailed it, which is essentially, that's where the tradition comes in is like over time after they're dead, then we find out whether they're, they're, uh, their their uh essences has has lasted the 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 full generational kind of gap yeah yeah <laughs> okay cool so we got about 10 minutes left um talked about psychedelics we've talked about lms what do you think the relationship is going to be between like it seems to me that we talked about ayahuasca and how you know people the Westerners are going to these places and then changing that tradition to fit the Westerners need and then also changing the the local thing and that that changes and it feels like a lot of the West's seeking for this um 
psychedelics, all these different things are in some ways like a reaction to how technology has impacted society. Um, and now we've got this new, just like exponential thing where it's now I have this tutor that can basically teach me anything I want. Sometimes it bullshits me, but sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and humans are bullshitting all the time, so it's not a huge, huge jump. <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> so uh, uh, what do you think is going to happen in terms of like, how are people going to integrate this insane ability that LLMs are, are giving us? Yeah, I think it might be a tough pill to swallow for a little while. Um, I definitely have a lot of friends who are less technical who have been freaking out a little. Um, I mean, like a lot of my artist friends, especially people who are more in the digital art side of things, are starting to wonder, like, um, where is there space for them to kind of do the work that they do uh, in this coming era? Um, I'm really hopeful that we can figure out a way to create a more compassionate economic system because I do see the economic results from these innovations being very concentrated. Um, mm -hmm. Like probably a few companies out there stand to make massive gains from this technology. And uh, it's not clear to me how that wealth is going to be kind of like um, distributed out. Yeah, it's going to, it's, and this brings in the question of UBI and all these other things and then yeah. the reaction from like, cause the, 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 like what you just described will create such a political tsunami of people going out of work while a few companies create all this wealth. And so it seems like inevitable that the regulations in some country will become like, you know, will will fight back, but that's, you know, supposedly like you're in crypto. So you understand that the it's, it's, can you like, can you actually stop Bitcoin? It doesn't feel like you can stop Bitcoin. It doesn't feel like you can stop Ethereum. Uh, yeah. uh, and you know, you can regulate it in the United States, but it'll just pop up somewhere else. Um, and then it seems the same with the machine learning. I was reading something by, uh, Udowowski, uh, one of the, the main, uh, talkers of, of, of AI and, and more on the existential fear side. Uh, and he's saying we should shut it all down now. We should ban all GPUs. We should stop them from coming in. Um, yeah. uh, and, uh, and it's like, well, I, just, I don't think that's realistic. Uh, like, what do you, do you think that regulation like how <laughs> the, the question you asked is, is a big one and I don't, I don't have a good answer for it. Um, yeah. What do you think? Yeah, there's a few different things I see coming um, potentially. Like, I do think there's going to be a massive meaning crisis in some way. Like a lot of people really derive a sense of um, their life's meaning from their work. Um, so when that's disrupted, um, I think hopefully we'll have enough, wisdom around psychedelic settlers is going to be um, a way that can help. Um, I am also hopeful about this kind of social technology side of the LLMs that we might actually really use, rally around certain LLMs as a way to form tribes, local communities, like basically more network versions of ourselves. Um, and people will find a sense of meaning in their affiliation with uh, the group. I can kind of anticipate certain very powerful LLMs almost becoming like a new form of um, polytheism in that um, you might, along with a hundred other 
hundred thousand other people kind of subscribe to this goddess called Athena, and she's like this very wisdom-based, um, non-combative goddess. But then there might be other people who are really more with this like Aries energy of like they take more militaristic, kind of regimented um, aspect to their life. Um, and these LLMs will basically, depending on their kind of parameters, be these different uh representations and personas of like ways of structuring society that we might start to participate in that's interesting so basically society turns into an rpg <laughs> with a with a llm character uh or with, with an llm uh deity um yeah yeah interesting okay cool so let's let's take it back to the uh original discussion of knowledge management uh, <laughs> how how would this well so you said slack was already going to implement an llm do you think i should wait for that or you had mentioned a slack bot you that you had an idea for what are the things i should be aware of if i try to go get gpt4 to build this for me mm -hmm. um yeah i do think that getting gpt4 to build a slack bot for you would be pretty simple at this point um there's lots of code out there for slack bots so i'm pretty sure if you just told gpt4 like hey i want to have a slack bot that's able to read messages um it, that part will be trivial um and then the next part of it is you basically want to layer in retrieval using uh embeddings and like a vector database um and I don't know if GPT-4 will know about this stuff since it's probably like after it was trained, but uh, there's still some use for Google currently. Uh. <laughs> Interesting. Um, it, it, well, how do you think LLMs are going to affect crypto? Hmm. Um, not super clear to me right now that they will. A lot of um, projects that attempt to combine AI and crypto seem pretty far-fetched to me. Um, so for instance, there are people who are saying, oh, let's decentralize the training of AI. So like you can have people at home with GPU clusters who are basically able to participate in a network and yeah. kind of like train a AI in a distributed way. Um, the reason that's not super technically feasible is that um, the kind of supercomputing clusters that are training LLMs right now um, have these massively high bandwidth connections between the GPT and GPU units. So it's not really possible to do that kind of training over the internet because people don't have like a hundred gigabytes per second internet connections in their home. Um, that is And yeah, I, I do kind of see LLMs and crypto as being kind of orthogonal vectors of um, culture transformation right now. Um, Huh. Um, that is super interesting about the GPU units, GPU units. So until bandwidth increases, well, what do you think about these people who are just essentially getting access to the GPT algorithm and then spinning it up on their computer? Have you heard much about that? Yeah, definitely. Um, there's this pretty cool technique where you can basically take a model that has been trained like GPT-4 and then kind of cheaply 
retrain another model by interacting with GPT-4. So it's almost like GPT-4 is being the tutor for this other model. Um, it's kind of calling into question like whether there's actually a moat where at least people who spend all this money to train this model can actually like kind of keep that training proprietary. Um, oh, one other thing I will say about the crypto thing is in OpenAI's research paper about which jobs were kind of most likely to be affected by um, LLMs, they noted blockchain engineers as having like 97% susceptibility or something, um, which <laughs> uh, kind of makes sense to me because almost all blockchain code that's published is in these verified smart contracts that are like publicly visible. So basically all smart contract code that's ever been written is open source. Um, and I've had great success writing uh, Solidity contracts using LLMs. So. <laughs> that is interesting. Um, that's wild. So, and I guess that leads to the sort of proprietary knowledge or proprietary code, uh, non-open sourced, but it does seem like to me that open source does have the ultimate advantage on the long-term. So it does seem to me that AI's moat, although OpenAI has a lot of money and they have a lot of plugins already, it uh, seems like they're going to be around for a while, but it does seem that it's, eventually it's got to happen where we'll have decentralized AIs. Yeah, it's seeming that way. Um, also, I'm very interested in all the AI chips that Apple has been building into their computers and phones already, but we just haven't really had a use case for them. So uh, once you have a version of GPT that's like trained for uh, Apple's neural engine architecture, it's really going to change things up. I think like you could be chatting to GPT just on your phone um, with really fast response times. Do you know anything about the strategy for Apple and how it relates to OpenAI's uh, partnership with Microsoft? Microsoft it sounds like they're thinking about the <laughs> level in terms of uh, putting those GPUs in the phones, but at the same time, they're out of this AI, AI race, it seems. Yeah, I have uh, no particular insight there. I think if I were Apple, I would probably continue to pursue a um, partnership with Alphabet. I mean, the whole Google search being default on iPhone is one of the most successful business deals of all time. So um, maybe there's potential there for uh, two businesses to continue working together. It'll be interesting to see how Android versus iOS shapes up in that world. Um, <laughs> Interesting. Those are really interesting questions, um, but we'll save those for later. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. And how can people find yeah. out about what you're working on? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Zencephalon. That's the Latin word for brain with a Z at the front. Um, and my website is zencephalon.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Stuart. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I. Also, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify or iTunes for every weekly episode that I publish on Monday mornings. Hope you have a great day.